All right, guys, welcome to Salt City. My name is Drew. Good to be with you again. If it is your first time here, I want to let you know we have been in the Gospel of Mark for seven months now. And one of the contrasts we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark is this contrast between true Christianity and false religion. What we're going to see this morning is that contrast become strikingly apparent. It's almost like Jesus is going to show us that religion is like a statue and true Christianity is like being a real, living, breathing human being. So I remember a few years ago, I went to Greece on sort of a biblical studies trip with my wife, Melissa. And we walked through all these ancient ruins of places where the Apostle Paul had been preaching the gospel. And in these little museums all over the place, there were 3,000-year-old statues that were super well-preserved, beautiful, and ornate And I remember standing at the base of these statues and thinking a couple things. Wow, that's amazing that they did that with such primitive tools. But the other thing that I thought was, I need to work out. (laughs) These guys are ripped, chiseled, right? And there's something impressive about the physique of a statue, But there's something more impressive, all of us would say, about the intricacy of a real, living human being. And what's true is that moralism, religion, can make you impressive. But only Jesus can give you life. Only Jesus can make you come alive. And my burden this morning is that some of you who come week in and week out to Salt City are merely statues. And this morning, I believe that Jesus wants to breathe life into you. And so what we're going to look at this morning are three evidences that you truly know God. Three diagnostic tests that you can do on your own life to, as Scripture exhorts us to do, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling to determine whether you have been made alive by Jesus, that you truly know God. So we're going to see that to know God is to be alive in relationship with him. To know God is to love him and others And to know God is to give him everything. So first of all, to know God is to be alive in relationship with him. We're in Mark chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. Those verses will be on the screens or you can flip there in your Bible. Mark 12, 24 through 26. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry 
nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Well, as you can tell from just a cursory reading through that passage, we have come into a conversation midstream. And Jesus is having a conversation with a group of people called the Sadducees. And what you need to know about the Sadducees is that they don't believe that God raises people from the dead. So the way that I remember that is they're sad, you see. So these guys enter into this conversation with Jesus. And they bring up a very obscure law in the Old Testament called the Law of Leverite Marriage. Anyone familiar with the Law of Leverite Marriage? Okay. So they bring this up, and essentially the Law of Leverite Marriage was that if a woman had a husband and her husband died and they were unable to have children, her husband's brothers, if he had any, would be responsible to marry her to prolong the lineage. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus trying to disprove the resurrection using this super obscure passage. And so they give him a hypothetical situation and they say, well, imagine there's a woman who's married to a man and the man has seven brothers. And the man dies and his first brother then marries his wife and they're unable to have kids and so on and so forth all the way down all seven of them. So they ask him the question, well, when everybody's dead, who is that woman going to be married to in heaven? And they're like, dot, 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 dot. This disproves the resurrection. Because if you can't answer the question, who's she going to be married to, then the resurrection must be a farce. So it's interesting that Jesus opens our passage by saying, you don't know the Bible. Because it seems to me they knew a lot of little details about a very obscure passage. And then Jesus gently becomes a little bit condescending with them, doesn't he? Because I asked you guys, do you know about the passage about love, right, marriage? And basically no one raised their hand. But you all know the passage about the burning bush. Right? And so these well-read Bible scholars, Jesus said to him, you guys remember the passage about the bush? I mean, how condescending. And these guys are like, yeah, we do. I mean, that'd be like asking somebody today, well, you know John 3.16, right? And so he begins to have this conversation with him, them about the passage about the bush. And he says, you remember what God said in the passage about the bush, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God was saying that to Moses, which means to truly 
know God is to have a relationship with him that cannot end even with death. That's the point Jesus is making. The main point about this whole Christianity thing and the whole Judaism thing was that God makes dead people come to life in such a way that they can never die because they're united to God in this unbreakable relationship. Which brings us to this place, this uncomfortable place, where we have this realization that it is possible for each of us to know a lot about the Bible, to have been raised in Christian families, to know a lot about God, to know the details, to have a lot of Bible trivia, to know a lot of answers to a lot of questions, and yet miss the most essential thing. Really the only thing that matters in comparison to everything else, and that is a relationship with the living God. This weekend, I had an opportunity to do something that some of you would hate, but I loved. I went to a conference over at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and I listened to seven hours of talks on heroes of the faith. And I was thinking about this passage, and one of the guys mentioned a story that I had heard before about a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher in Great Britain in the 20th century. And he had initially been an atheist and a medical doctor, and through the influence of one of his colleagues, he came to know Christ and was called to preach the gospel. And his first assignment was a small town in Wales where he began to just open up the Bible as we're doing this morning and preaching through the Bible verse by verse. And here's something amazing. In his first few years of ministry in Wales, one of the people that he got to see come to know Jesus was his own wife. Imagine that. Pastor's wife, she had grown up in a Christian family. She had gone to church. She knew the Bible. And under her own husband's preaching, she admitted that she was not a Christian. Here's my fear. Some of you are too proud to admit that you're not a Christian. God's been stirring something in your heart through this series. We've been walking through these different passages and you're starting to have this gut-level feeling. Maybe you've been religious, but you haven't actually come to faith. And I want you to ask an incredibly difficult question. Would you rather hold on to your pride and lose your soul for eternity? Or lay down your pride and gain eternal life.
if Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, the pastor's wife, can give her life to Christ and admit it, so can you. Okay, so here's, here's the next question. Okay, that's just sort of a big, we're kind of up in the air right now, right? We've sort of introduced the topic. Now we've got to little, get a little bit more specific. Okay, we know that we know God when we're alive in relationship with him. But secondly, we need to know that we're alive in this relationship with him by how we love him and others. So in other words, to know God is to love him and others. Another way we can determine whether we're in the faith is to see if we love God and we love other people. So this argument's going on between Jesus and the Sadducees about the resurrection, and one of the scribes, who's probably also a Sadducee, came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Later, Jesus says to the same scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because he was sort of saying, okay, cut this out. I don't want to be part of this argument. I want to get to the heart of the matter. Jesus says, you want to diagnose whether you really get this, whether you really understand what being a follower of Jesus is all about. You got to understand the essence of the entire law. And he boils it down to God is one. Why is it important that Jesus didn't just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself? Why does he start with God is one? Because we first need to understand that God is in a category by himself. He is one in the sense that he is an integrated whole. He doesn't change. He doesn't have mood swings. He is perfect. Another way of saying this is that God is holy. Whereas we are known to let each other off the hook, God cannot in his nature let anyone off the hook because he is perfect and he demands perfection out of the people that he has made in his image. And what that perfection entails is that we love God and love other people from the heart. What you have to understand is that Christianity, unlike every other religion in the world, is not about outward conformity. It is not about what you do. It is about inward transformation. Because if we begin to examine ourselves by the standard, not of what we do, but of who we love, we find 
that we do not love God as we ought to love God. We have not made him the very central focus of our lives and our affections. And we have not loved the people around us as we should. Instead, we have done the exact opposite of the two greatest commandments. We have ignored and disregarded God and downplayed the needs of others, and we have placed ourselves at the center of the universe. The reason that this man is not far from the kingdom of God is because he's willing to face the facts about himself. He's willing to take a long look in the mirror and to stop playing with God. And when you come to the place where you're no longer playing with God and just trying to be moral and do good things and thinking that you can impress God the way that you impress your friends, you come to realize that the only possible way you can be saved is to have a heart transplant. Now imagine you're at a party with all your friends. This is a nice occasion. Maybe it's at a wedding. You're wearing a suit. You're wearing a dress. You look nice. And you notice there's like some kind of tingling in your arm. And then you notice you got a little bit of extra sweat on your forehead. And then you realize like inside in your chest something is starting to hurt. And then things start going numb. And you start to realize, this is serious. I am having a heart attack. And so immediately, you start scanning the room. You realize, I've got two options here. One is, with my last breaths before I pass out, I can yell, help, call 911. I need to get out of here. Or, you can try to save face people have done, by the way. So you drink a little bit of water, you grab a napkin, you start dabbing your forehead, and maybe you try to just slowly slip out the back door. Problem is, you try to save face, you are going to die. Because your heart is in such a condition that if you do not immediately alert someone to call 911, it will be too late. When there's a problem with your heart, it's a big deal. And the way that you begin to recognize partially, I don't think we'll ever recognize fully how sick our hearts are, the way that you begin to recognize it partially is to see what God actually requires of you. And it's that you are no longer focused on yourself and worshiping yourself, but you are instead worshiping God and loving others. Okay, let's get a little bit more specific here. What does this mean? actually look like 
in its essence. This passage ends in sort of a beautiful way. Because basically what it does is it boils this down to an Instagram picture for us. It shows us one snapshot, one photo. If things aren't clear to us yet, Jesus wants to show us what this looks like in one moment of time when he was living on the earth. And basically, the way he summarizes it is to know God is to give him everything. Mark 12, 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That's kind of a funny picture, isn't it? Jesus has gotten a lawn chair, and he's sitting watching the offering box to see what people are going to do. And he's invited his disciples to pull up a lawn chair as well. And they're sitting back, seeing how much people are putting in. And they can tell who the rich people are. They've got really nice clothes and nice jewelry, Rolexes, all that kind of stuff. And they're going, and they're, they got smiles on their faces, putting in big checks. Maybe they're excited. Jesus is watching. Grab a little bit of extra. You know, maybe they're putting them in slow, listening to like the loud clang in the box, kind of patting themselves on the back, maybe looking at Jesus, giving a wink. Like, I did it, right? This little widow walks up. Couple small copper coins. Don't make much noise. Puts them in. Clang, clang. Walks away, hanging her head. Jesus says, that is the Instagram picture, the perfect contrast between religion and true faith. Why? She gave God everything she had. She held nothing back from him. She had seen his glory and his perfection and his beauty in such a way that she laid it all down. If you haven't seen that when Jesus calls you, he calls you to give everything, you haven't met Jesus yet. There can be no closets in our hearts that go unexamined. When you give your life to Jesus, you say it's all yours, nothing's off limits, including your money. I remember seeing this contrast in a super 
stark way when Melissa and I were doing support raising. So we've done a lot of support raising in ministry over the years, going to people's houses and asking them to be partners with us in the gospel, to give money to support the work of Jesus so that we can freely tell people about his finished work. And I remember within a few days of each other, we met with this man. Happened to be very wealthy. Went to his house, big, nice house. We asked him for support. We challenged him to give us $100 a month to our ministry. And with a smile, he said, I'd be glad to. Be great. He goes, you know what? This whole Christianity thing, it's a great deal. I was like, yeah, it is. You know, it's awesome. Christianity is amazing. Like that Jesus died for us and all that. And then he surprised me with what he said next. He said, it's great. I give Jesus 10% of what I have and I get to keep everything else. I remember just standing there. How sad. $100 a month, that's a lot of money. But you know what I'm afraid of? He didn't get it. Didn't understand. You don't get to keep 90% of what you have. It's all Jesus's. In contrast, we met with an elderly woman in her 90s. We went to her house. Lived in a small, basically studio. She was supporting tons of other people. We met with her. I basically just wanted to hang out with her because she's just one of the most godly people that I know. And I remember meeting with her. And... Uh, we start talking and, you know, didn't have to be real bold with the challenge. I just said, hey, would you like to jump on and help support our ministry? And she said, well, just with all humility, I think I'm supporting 15 other people. And, you know, but you know what? I don't need TV. You know, she had a cable or whatever. I don't need TV. Of course I'll support you. Sure, I'll just disconnect my cable. I think that's about 100 bucks a month. Those two, $100 a month, were two very different gifts. Because Evelyn, the second lady, was saying to Jesus, I will give you everything. So where are you at? In your own life, in your own heart, have you said to Jesus, everything is yours. My life is yours. My bank account is yours. My sexuality is yours. Or is there something you're holding back? Now, of course, there's something we're all holding back, right? Of course. Who can say, I've kept my life pure. Since I've given my life to Christ, I've gone all in. I've given him everything. Who can say that? So where do we go from here? Whether we're lost, have never trusted in Christ, have never given our lives to him, or whether we've genuinely known him, been converted for years. Turns out the answer is basically the same. In the middle of this passage, we sort of skipped over it. Jesus 
asks the Sadducees a question about another obscure Old Testament passage. Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. In this passage, Jesus gives us the key to how we can know God even though we are presently imperfect. It was well known in the religious community in those days that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be the Son of David. And so what Jesus does here is he brings up this passage from Psalm 110. And in that passage, David says, the Lord said to my Lord. And the point Jesus is making is that David says that his Lord has a Lord. So why is David calling someone Lord who is not God the Father? And how can David's Lord because evidently he's talking about the Messiah in this passage as well, also be David's son. How can God be David's son? Jesus says that's the key to having a relationship with God, to knowing God. Do you know the answer to the question? It's the classic Sunday school answer. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is God become human. And the reason that God became human is because you could not, through your own effort, reach your way to God. Jesus made a way for you to be in relationship with God without obeying his commandments perfectly. You want a new heart? You want a heart that loves God and loves other people? You want a heart that will give away everything? Jesus came to be your good physician. The reason that Jesus came is to take out your heart of stone and give you a real live heart again. And the way that he did that is by taking your place on the cross, dying for your sins, being in the ground for you for three days, and rising again. So here's the good news. Jesus is alive. He is present with us here. And he wants to give you a new heart. So how do you get a new heart? You admit that you don't have one. You cry out. You call 911. You ask for a heart transplant. And no one who have, has ever sought a heart transplant 
from Jesus has ever been turned down. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the master physician. Although we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not given you everything. And yet you have made a way for us to get a new heart that actually begins to follow in the true essence of your commandments. I ask that you would make it clear to each person who is here this morning whether or not they are saved. And Jesus, for those who are far from you, who think they are close to you, would you show them their need? Would you give heart transplants? Would you do what I or anyone else could never do? And that's actually save someone this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.